This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio. I'm Jeff Begay's filling in for Gil Gross. On this edition of America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio, crisis in Cuba and Haiti. In Cuba, protests over food and medicine shortages. Cuban leadership blames the U.S. for instigating the unrest. Manipulating the emotions and feelings of people, he said. He blames the economic downturn here on the U.S. embargo. And in Haiti, the assassination of a president. The gunmen claimed to be DEA agents during last Wednesday's attack shooting President Moise 12 times. The alleged assassins have ties to the U.S. Some work as informants for the DEA. Now, the Pentagon announces that some of the alleged assassins receive military training from the U.S. Make no mistake about it, what's happening in those island nations is a problem, a real problem for the Biden administration. Coming up, we'll talk to a Haitian business owner about the current conditions in the country. Also, the politics of Cuba and Haiti and Florida, why it's all connected and could be a factor in the midterm elections and the 2024 presidential election. We think of the Cuban-Americans as this this large population of of Latinos who are in Florida and have great um, political sway. At the same time, there are a million plus Puerto Ricans who are mostly in the northern part of the state, what they call the I-4 corridor. There are all these different communities that are all mixed up um, in in the Florida uh, cauldron of politics. And finally, on this edition of America Change Forever, Black Widow. The movie is killing it at the box office, so is Hollywood back in business. I tell people my sister moved out west. You're a science teacher. That's not my story. (laughs) And now to Haiti, where the country is making preparations to bury its president after the assassination. What is happening there now? What are the Haitian people thinking? I spoke with Kalinda Magloire, a Haitian business owner currently in the country. Kalinda, as we do this interview, there is new information from the Pentagon. Uh, Pentagon officials saying that a review of their training databases indicates that a small number of the Colombian individuals detained as part of this investigation into the assassination of the president of Haiti had participated in past U.S. military training and education programs while serving as active members of of the Colombian military forces. I'll be honest with you, Jeff. For me, this is not the main issue. I mean, obviously, if you hire mercenaries, you're you're bound to find people who have had some training in a foreign country, 
who have participated in some military operation here or there. Um, it doesn't give us any lead on who is the mastermind behind this assassination. And so frankly, I mean, every day there are new information like this, the Colombian military forces, one of the informant close to the DEA. Now you're telling me that they've been trained by, by the, the Pentagon. But honestly, for me, these are not giving us any leads on who is responsible for this and where are we going from, from now? Well, what, what is the speculation that you're hearing on the streets of Haiti? What are people in Haiti saying? Who do they think is behind this operation? Well, that's the saddest part. It, it shows you the divide that exists in Haiti's society. People don't, I mean, I'm not going to go as far as say they don't care, but they feel like they're never going to have the truth, that this is things that is happening in the elite, that they've never had a word to say in these political matters. And for them, it's, they're in a resignation position saying that, well, these people sort their things out, and when they're done, they'll, we'll know, and they'll continue to lead the country without us. That's pretty much the feeling in the streets. Well, and I'm sure in the streets, given the conditions that some people are living in in Haiti, they're more concerned about the day-to-day, how to feed their families, how to survive uh, in the current economic conditions that, frankly, we've been talking about for, for decades as it relates to Haiti. Exactly. Exactly. And the feeling for them is that um, before or after is not going to make any changes in their daily life. And it's frankly up to, up to us, civil society, entrepreneurs, people in the diaspora, people who, who are trying to, to make a living here and create jobs. It's, it's sometimes, at some point, it's up to us to be able to engage ourselves to make the future different. I, I own a company called Switch. It's a social enterprise with the objective of helping Haitian families switch from charcoal, which is the, the main f- cooking fuel right now, to, to propane for different reasons. First of all, there's a heavy problem of deforestation in Haiti. Second of all, charcoal is bad for the women's health who are cooking, and it's more expensive than propane, so it has an heavy toll on, on their living expenses. So that's what we do. We manufacture stoves and we find a way of distributing it with uh, increasing access, whether it's through credit, through subsidies, or even through remittance mechanism where we ask people uh, of uh, Haitian origin in the States, for instance, to send the stove to their family in Haiti and we deliver it. So that's what we do. And for us, it's more than a business, it's a mission. So yes, it's a, it's a struggle every day because Haiti's business competitiveness is one of the lowest rank in the, in the whole world. But I mean, there are a lot, a lot of people like us who feel like being here is a responsibility, being here is important and trying to do their part to make a change is, I mean, Living in Haiti is, well, when you have the 
put it that way. Millions of people do not have the choice of being here. But for those who have a choice, it's like a mission. You love your country. You want to be here. You know that the conditions are not optimal. But if all educated people leave, there will be no future for this country. How do you think or what do you think it's going to take for Haiti to finally and permanently make a pivot to a sustained government that is putting the people first. What is it going to take? At this point where we are today, the first, the first thing that has to happen is to, I would say, sanitize the political landscape. What and do you mean that, by that? I mean, we are plagued by corruption, nepotism. Uh, many politicians have relations and ties to gangs. All of that is not allowing the state to do a proper job. I mean, I gave you an example of telephone and, and electricity, but right now, any citizen in Haiti is not receiving any public good through the state. I mean, no water, sanitation, nothing. And all of this is due by the fact that people in elected, elected position or in the government put their interests first. And today, um, and we've had these crossroads before in the past, but this is a crossroad today. And I think that if civil society and small entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs, people here and people abroad do not engage and try to get a seat at the table so that the table is not only surrounded by the same traditional politicians, we're going to miss that crossword once again. Linda, good luck to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. When we come back, Jamal Simmons, a CBS News political contributor on how Cuba and Haiti are a factor in U.S. politics and could play a role in the midterms in 2022 and the general election for president in 2024. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. I spoke with Jamal Simmons, a CBS News political contributor. You spent time in Haiti uh, in 95 with Bill Clinton. Tell us about that time and, and that experience for you. I did. Uh, back in the early 90s, I was part of Bill Clinton's sort of logistical advance staff. And so uh, we went out for the White House and we set up events for the president. And And I was with the president the night at the, he did a Congressional Black Caucus dinner, the night he was planning the invasion to go into Haiti to restore Aristide from coup leaders. Uh, they sent Jimmy Carter and Colin Powell down to Haiti to get the coup leaders to stand down. It was unclear whether or not it would work. The next day, uh, Raul Sadras, who was the coup leader, decided to step down. So the U.S. troops landed without fanfare um, and without any violence. So, you know, by March of 1995, uh, President Clinton went to, you know, to take credit for this great thing. And so I spent a week down there and I was, you know, on a military base and in the in the community. And um, what's interesting to me now is how much history, tragedy, earthquakes, 
you know, we've now seen multiple governments and now this assassination, which when I talk to my Haitian friends, they're all baffled by um, and why this occurred. But the thing that occurs to me as an American who follows politics and has been involved in politics is um, in 1995, there had been a, a, a run up to American involvement in that uh, situation for about three years. Uh, the Haitian government has asked for American involvement uh, to secure some locations, I guess, this time. But the American people really, I think, are not thinking about Haiti at all. You know, our, our thinking about foreign excursions are in Afghanistan and Iraq. So I think if Joe Biden were to say we're sending troops to Haiti, it would probably come as much more of a surprise today than it came to the American public back in the 90s. Well, how much do you think that there is the possibility that they could or that they're even considering sending troops to Haiti at this time? Um, I don't think that there's much consideration about that. They seem to be uh, very distant. The president has said to um, publicly uh, that the Haitians should, you know, should take this time and, and, and work this out. Um, I think they've sent some uh, DEA and FBI, DEA, some FBI agents down there to try to uh, figure it out. There is some concern, I guess, the night of the assassination, people were claiming to be DEA agents. So the American government, you know, we have to remember, as a friend of mine likes to remind me, uh, nobody roots for Goliath um, in, in the David and Goliath story. And in this case, most often the Americans are seen as Goliath. They're the giants. And so everyone is suspicious that the Americans are already involved because there's been some connection to Americans and some Americans arrested. So the American government has got to really uh, look into and make sure that people understand if it's true, the American government had nothing to do with the assassination and try to be as supportive of the um, Haitian government as possible, I would imagine. Well, based on your experience there in the early 90s and uh, your knowledge of the political dynamics in this country, do, do you think the, the Haitian government, uh, how does it view the U.S.? Does it view the U.S. as a, a problem for its you know, sovereignty, or does it view the U.S. as a friend? You know, it's a troubled history. This, you know, the 1990s exchange uh, uh, troops weren't the only troops that have been on Haitian soil in the 20th century. Uh, so I think there were a, a dozen or so years um, in the early part of the 20th century where there were also American troops on the ground. Uh, and I think many people in Haiti think of America as part of the Western powers that have kept the country destabilized since its independence. So there is a very complicated. Um, feeling about it. At the same time, people aspire to be, to come to America, to use American goods, to, you know, um, America is a place people look at uh, positively from a cultural and economic perspective personally. So it's a complicated relationship. The, the, and obviously there's so many Americans of Haitian descent uh, who are here in the United States and, and are uh, a part of our community. So, so there is that level of political engagement. And remember, you know, we have this, this problem of, uh, what they call wet foot, dry foot. Uh, for those of us who've done work and lived in Florida, you understand this very well. If you're Cuban and you are, and you are on the water, you can come to the United States. If you're Haitian, you can only stay if you get to the ground. So if you leave Haiti on a boat and you can put your feet on American soil, then you can get refugee status. If you're interdicted in the water, you can get turned around and sent back which is not true for Cubans. So there's always in Florida, among particularly the Haitian community, the black community and the Latino community, been this friction about the disparity in the policy between those two, um, those two refugees who were coming to the U.S. And we saw that and, and you were there during or involved in the, uh, the political, uh, the decision making, I think, or, or some of the uh, political decisions 
behind Alien Gonzalez and the, the, the politics at play uh, in the state of Florida in the late 90s. I was there, too, in, in Miami, anchoring for a local station there when Alien Gonzalez, the little boy from Cuba, washed ashore. I was on live television uh, commenting on what was happening as, as he was picked up on, on, on shore and then went, uh, you know, this, this huge uh, political crisis uh, between Cuba, this tug of war over this little boy and whether he should be with his family in Miami or his father in Cuba. Uh, so much emotion based around that decision. And ultimately, I was on the air the morning that uh, American agents uh, went into his family home in Little Havana and snatched him from his relatives, ultimately reuniting him with his father in Cuba. Uh, but that was a big political decision uh, to, to make that move. I believe Janet Reno was attorney general at the time, and Jamal, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but you remember that and why uh, the politics of Cuba and Haiti especially in the state of Florida, is such a big deal. So I came at this um, a little bit later. I was uh, Al Gore's deputy communications director during his presidential campaign. And you're right. It was Janet Reno who was the attorney general. She authorized the federal agents to go in and get Elion and, and take him back to his father. Um, and Al Gore, though, had come out and said, no, I think he should be allowed to stay. Elion, the young boy, should be allowed to stay in the U.S. with his American relatives. It didn't seem to matter, though, because the Cuban-American population um, never really forgave the Clinton administration for doing the Cuban American population in Florida, never forgave the Clinton administration for sending Elian Gonzalez back to Cuba. And what they couldn't take out on Bill Clinton and Janet Reno, they took out on Al Gore. And he had a, a depressed amount of votes uh, in that 2000 election from Florida. And as we all remember, it all went to a very close 537 vote margin. Um, this is the challenge for Democrats has been trying to get from um, a conservative base since the 1960s and the Bay of Pigs, where Cuban-Americans have identified more with Republicans, to a new generation of Cuban-Americans who seem to be more open to democratic policies, but they still have this foreign policy question at hand. And I think right now, as uh, the American government is wrestling through what to do in Cuba and how to respond to the unrest happening there, uh, Democrats, particularly the president and his allies, are, you know, they want to make sure that they're not going to make things worse with the Cuban-American community as these issues get sussed out. Yeah, and I, I think so that's why I wanted to talk to you, because I don't know if the average American understands why what is happening right now in Cuba and Haiti is so important to domestic politics here in this country, especially now we're, you know, I was looking at the calendar the other day, we're, you know, coming up on a year out from the midterms. Um, yeah, year out from the midterms. Uh, we have 2024 on the horizon. Uh, the current governor of Florida could be a general election uh, candidate for the Republicans uh, in 2024. Florida is already a red state, uh, and it has always played a, a critical role in presidential elections. And so uh, Cuban politics as it relates to the U.S., Haitian politics as it relates to the U.S., it, it really could be a factor in, in potentially turning Florida from red to blue. It could be. And you know this because you've lived in Florida and worked down there for a while. The Florida, Florida politics is um, it is a very ethnically diverse 
community. So we think of the Cuban Americans as this, this large population of, of Latinos who are in Florida and have great um, political sway in the state. At the same time, there are a million plus Puerto Ricans who are mostly in the northern part of the state, what they call the I-4 corridor going into Orlando, and many of them who work in the Disney properties and, and, and in tourism and all the things that exist along that I-4 corridor around Orlando. So they're also American citizens, right? Because they're Puerto Ricans. And so they have come to America and they live there. So um, and then you you got obviously Haitians are there, people from all over Central America. There are all these different communities that are all mixed up um, in in the Florida uh, cauldron of politics. So the Democrats usually do better with non-Cuban Hispanics, and so they are, they pay attention to that. Uh, what was interesting in the last uh, Senate and gubernatorial election is Rick Scott, who had been the governor, he understood this question about Cuban about Latino politics. And he invested heavily in all of these different communities and communicating with them. And so remember, there was the tragedy of the hurricane in Puerto Rico. The state of Florida under Rick Scott set up welcome centers for Puerto Ricans when they came on, whether they came by boat or by airplane, they set up welcome centers for them in Florida to ensure that they knew the state of Florida was welcoming them to the state. So he did better, Rick Scott, uh, the, the governor when he ran for the Senate, he did better in Florida among the Puerto Rican community than Republicans have been doing. So Democrats can't sort of rest on the laurels of thinking as the country becomes more Latino, more Hispanic, that it's going to be more Democratic. If Republicans and Donald Trump did well, did better with Republican, but with uh, Latino voters as well, those voters are really swing voters in the new electorate. And so the, the Democrats have to pay a lot of attention to how they're managing this politics in Florida. Jamal Simmons, CBS News political contributor. Thank you. When we come back, turning to the Black Widow blockbuster. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Black Widow has people talking about how movie theaters are back. At some point, we all have to choose between what the world wants you to be and who you are. People have been packing into theaters to see Scarlett Johansson take on the bad guys. I interviewed Eric Davis of Fandango about what the success of the Marvel movie means for Hollywood as we emerge from the pandemic. Eric, thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us. Are people going back to the theaters to see Black Widow? They're definitely going back to see Black Widow. You know, this is the first Marvel Studios movie uh, in over two years to arrive in theaters. And that's the pent up demand for this film uh, is pretty significant. Uh, you know, especially when you keep in mind that Marvel Studios movies are really the biggest and most popular movies that are being made today. Uh, are these comic book movies and, and specifically the ones by Marvel Studios. And so I think when you have that as a factor, when you have the pent up demand 
as a factor. And then when you have uh, the factor that this is a solo film for Black Widow, the character played by Scarlett Johansson, who uh, fans have been wanting to see her get her own film, uh, really from the from when she was first introduced in Iron Man 2 over a decade ago. And so, you know, you take all of those things and you combine them, you see a perfect storm of anticipation, you know, and then you layer on the fact that uh, a lot of people haven't been back to the movies in a year and a half, and they're waiting for that big movie, that big Marvel movie to go back to. And so all of that combined uh, really to make that perfect storm, $80 million opening. It was the biggest opening domestically uh, for any film since um, uh, I would say March, February, 2020, around there. Um, oh no, actually since the rise of Skywalker, sorry, back up even further, since 2019, the biggest opening um, at the domestic box office. And, and I think it's, it's done something like over 200 million globally as of this conversation. And so it's, it's doing well. Um, and that's with the film also available on Disney plus, uh, for a price of $30 for people to watch it at home. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a juggernaut and it's a film that, uh, that a lot of people made a lot of people sit up in their seats and pay attention again, uh, to the theatrical box office. Also, you just mentioned the, the dual stream of revenue that the, the studios are seeing from streaming and now people going back to the theater. So the pandemic in some ways, it sounds like it may have opened up, you know, a bigger revenue stream for these studios. I think it's definitely opened up a stream of um, experimentation, you know, uh, of saying, OK, you know, how do we kind of how can we mix and match if we put a film here? How does it do if we put a film there? How does it do? And so and I think we're still seeing that, you know, Warner Brothers decided to uh, put all of their films uh, for 2021 onto HBO Max and to in theaters on the same day. Uh, you don't have to pay an extra fee. You just have to subscribe to HBO Max. Disney, uh, some of their films go right to Disney Plus. Some of them you have to pay an extra $30 to watch at home on Disney Plus as well as see it in theaters. And so you see the studios are all sort of experimenting with different ways of putting content out there. Regardless of the experimentation that we have seen over the past year, year and a half, um, the, the Hollywood knows that a healthy global theatrical marketplace is really where you want to be exclusively when you're opening a big film, a film that people really want to see. That's where you're going to make the most uh, most amount of money. And so I think that we'll continue to see experimentation. It's too early to tell just how permanently uh, COVID has affected the industry when it comes to release strategies. Um, but it's it's been a fun time. And I think if you are a consumer, um, you are getting more options than you've ever had before oh. in terms of how oh. you watch your content. Oh, and that's what I like to hear because I'm one of those guys and, and I'm not going to profess to be some sort of uh, movie connoisseur or anything, but I'm just an old fashioned dude who, you know, I've been saying for years, why don't they allow these, you know, big blockbuster movies to debut on your living room television? I'll be willing to pay a little bit more if I don't have to go to the theater, because I'd rather just sit at home with some popcorn, my feet up, my remote in hand, and watch it from home. And so this pandemic in that way has been good for me. Uh, and it just seems like, you know, this is something that's long overdue. And doesn't it just increase the amount of, of eyeballs that these studios are going to get on their, their films? I mean, it seems to me that that's what has happened, or is there no evidence of that? And that's why you're saying this is more in the experimental phase. 
Well, I think in some cases it's increased eyeballs uh, on on a film. You know, when it comes to the streaming services, uh, we don't we don't really have access to their numbers. We we have access to the information that they decide to provide to us. Uh, you know, up until this point, you know, Disney has had other films on their premiere access. Uh, Mulan was there. Cruella was there. Uh, Raya and the Last Dragon was there. Uh, they did not come out Monday morning and tell us how those films did on premiere access. Uh, we had their box office, but not that. So they decided to do it with Black Widow. Maybe Black Widow hit a certain number that they had wanted that film to hit before they, they put a, a release out there and told you. Um, so I think, you, you know, we don't exactly know how well a film does, you know, and then and then you, know, you may get eyeballs on it, but how long are those eyeballs staying on there? I'm going to have more with Eric Davis of Fandango when we come back. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Let's continue with Fandango's movie expert, Eric Davis. I, I understand and I agree that sometimes there's a comfortableness that we have in our own homes that we want to watch what we want to watch, a big film or a small film or a TV show, where we're comfortable. Uh, but then you also have, you know, you have these big movies, these special movies that are just alongside thousands and thousands of other kinds of content. It just becomes another thing in your row. Um, and then maybe you watch 10 minutes of Black Widow and now you're watching an episode of The Office, you know? And so I think that there is a sort of a uniqueness and, and there's a special kind of quality to a film when you leave your house, you go watch it in a movie theater. It, it leaves a, a bigger impact on you. It enhances your experience of that film. And I think that uh, movies and, you know, in general, um, become more important and consequential to the larger cultural conversation when they are given that exclusive theatrical release, uh, because mm. that makes them feel a little bit more special than just something else that's on your TV, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And you know what, as you talk about that, I'm thinking about, all right, I'm old enough to remember the days when HBO was just starting and it was on my black and white TV and I didn't have a remote control. I was the family remote control getting up and having to change the channels. So the fact that we have all these options right now, it is really, it seems like a good time for the movie industry. I know we just got through a pandemic, but what I see in the menu of options also, it also is a lot of diversity in these films. Uh, can you talk about how Hollywood has evolved uh, over the last year, all the calls for diversity in, in films and diversity, frankly, in the award shows, too. How has it evolved in your view? I think it's evolved significantly, you know, and I think it evolved because Hollywood really started listening to the audience um, and, and saying the audience was saying, you look, you know, we want to see everyone represented on that big screen. If I go to see a giant blockbuster, uh, I want to see myself represented, you know? And, and I think when, when, you know, when Black Panther came out, that's another Marvel Studios film, you know, I had a front row seat to uh, watching just what that kind of representation meant for uh, the African-American audience. Uh, and I remember I went with a, uh, I helped a school from the Bronx uh, go see the film for free. And I went, I sat with them. Um, and these kids were just so, uh, you know, ecstatic to see, uh, see themselves represented on this big screen in this really big, important superhero movie that's going to break box office records. Um, and that's important. And that that just trickles down into the community. It trickles down into into people in, in terms of in confidence and um, and, uh, and and sort of expectations that, you know, when these big movies and TV shows come out, uh, they are going to see themselves represented and, and that that Hollywood is, is, you know, is making that an important priority 
um, across the board. And, and we're not just yeah. seeing it on, you know, in front of cameras, we're seeing it behind cameras, we're seeing it at executive levels. And there is just definitely a wave of change that's coming across the industry. It has been for the last few years. It continues to come across. Um, and I think it's, it's going to be great um, for, especially for these communities, these underrepresented communities who, who historically have not seen themselves represented uh, in the big sort of conversation starters around movies and TV. Um, and so I think it's all a really great thing. Yeah, didn't Shonda Rhimes, who's behind Grey's Anatomy and so many other hit shows, who's now doing um, uh, deals with Netflix, didn't she just sign a new deal with Netflix and she's sort of expanding her portfolio? Also, you know, I, I had to, of course, the, the movie critic in our family is my 11-year-old daughter who told me that, yeah, Dad, uh, Captain America now is black. Anthony Mackie, he, he's now Captain America? Well, they did have a show. It's called The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. You know, uh, Marvel Studios, uh, in order to help keep keep fans at bay, they did, they're making TV series now, and they've released three of them uh, before Black Widow arrived in theaters. One of them was The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and you know, I think so. That's a TV show. Of, that that was a TV show on Disney Plus. Marvel very successful. Uh, they just landed a ton of Emmy nominations for these shows, uh, especially WandaVision. That was the first show that came out. Uh, a lot of Emmy nominations for the, for the show for Paul Bettany for Elizabeth. With Olsen. But with Falcon and the Winter Soldier, you know, uh, at the end of Avengers Endgame, which was the last big event movie for Marvel Studios, uh, Captain America gives up the shield uh, to Sam, who is his good friend, he plays Falcon, played by Anthony Mackie. Um, and so they, but you could tell that Sam uh, was conflicted in being handed that shield and, and what that responsibility meant. Um, and so Marvel went and created an entire series a show about that and about what it means to be handed uh, the red, white, and blue shield, uh, to be handed sort of the moniker of Captain America uh, at, at a time at a time like we're in now, um, where there are a lot of racial tensions and and um, uh, you know across the board in communities and so communities of color. So uh, it, I thought it was a fantastic show, and uh, and and yeah, spoiler warning, but at the end of that series, um, Anthony Mackie does become the new Captain America. They are developing a Captain, new Captain America film with him in the lead. Um, and so it's all really great stuff. You know, I think that that's the beauty of the comics is that, you know, that there wasn't one guy that played Captain America for the, you know, in the history of comics. You know, you always have all of these different characters and, and now they're getting into the multiverse. And so, you're, you know, they have a new show, Loki, uh, and now you're seeing variants of one character. So instead of just one Loki, you see like 10 different versions of Loki. And this is sort of a storyline that they're going to now bring in to the next several films. And so uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I think if you're a comics reader, um, this is the most exciting time that we've, uh, that we've ever been when it comes to comic book movies. Yeah, Hollywood has found a way to go back to the well over and over and over again. So good for them. So now if I go back to the theaters for the first time in at least a couple of years, have things changed inside the theaters? Is there now social distancing inside? How, how do they look inside? Well, it depends on, on your local community, right, and what, and what, what the protocols are in place. Uh, and then it depends on the specific theater chain. Some theater trains, chains are still uh, enacting, you know, uh, COVID protocols, which would include social distancing, which would include a limited capacity. Uh, but some theaters are 100% open um, and, uh, and, and uh, full capacity. And so um, you have to look into whatever theater is in your local community, and, and maybe you could check ahead and call them and see uh, if that is important to you, what safety procedures they have in place. But the few times that I have been to the theater um, in, in during throughout COVID and, and post-COVID, uh, it's been very clean. It's like the cleanest I've seen a theater since. And, I mean, that goes for everything. I was in a, a train station bathroom the other day, and I was like, this is the cleanest I've ever seen the train station bathroom. Um, so another, another <laughs> positive that's come out, and things are a lot cleaner 
than maybe they had been in the past. So theaters are very clean. Um, and, you know, this everybody that works at a theater that runs a theater knows just how important, um, you know, the sort of right now it's to movie theaters um, and to the endurance of movie theaters. And so I think they're embracing that. And you work for Fandango, which, uh, from what I hear, has been expanding its portfolio, uh, acquiring more streaming services. Is that right? Well, well, Fandango, yeah, Fandango is is really a suite of of brands at this point. A lot of which a lot of people don't know, but Fandango also owns Rotten Tomatoes, um, and uh, which is uh, a lot of people go to Rotten Tomatoes to find out a score of a movie before they decide what what kind of what movie they want to go that. see. Yeah, um, I do that. I rely on those Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it's a very, very big brand for us. And also we have Movie Clips, which is a YouTube brand with uh, over 86 million subscribers to, to Movie Clips. It's one of the biggest movie-related um, sort of channels on YouTube. There's several Movie Clips channels that we have. Uh, and then we also acquired more recently Voodoo, uh, which is a transactional movie and TV service. It's a la carte. So whereas, a, whereas like a Netflix or an Apple, you have to subscribe a certain amount of a monthly fee in order to gain access to their content, uh, Voodoo, you can buy and rent movies uh, on demand. Uh, and so, you know, if you just want to buy, rent a one-off movie or if you want to own a digital version of a movie, uh, you would go to Voodoo uh, to do that. Uh, and so it's been uh, it's been really great, you know, being part of this family of, of brands because um, no matter how you interact with a movie or a TV series throughout the life of it, you know, we can kind of help steer your, you know, whether it's your decision on what you want to watch, whether it's your movie ticket to see it in the theater, whether it's your rental at home, you know, we're a part of your experience all the way through. When we come back, a preview of next week's episode on the opioid epidemic. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Next week, a look at the opioid crisis. She's dead. Overdose. There's such a ripple effect when somebody overdoses and dies uh, that there's so much collateral damage that you can't even measure it. We were improving, and then the pandemic came along, and there were a lot of relapses. on drugs, PDs requesting you all check her out. It affects our first responders tremendously. They are not just going on overdoses and overdose deaths. They're going on overdoses of their friends, uh, people they graduated from high school with. It really hasn't been something that I have focused on in my daily reporting work for CBS News, but last week something changed when I saw the numbers from the government. The numbers of overdose deaths, they shot up during the pandemic. So I was asked to take a closer look at the numbers and do a report on the CBS Evening News on this crisis. Okay, a new report shows in stark detail how the COVID pandemic has made America's drug crisis far worse. Overdose deaths soared 29% last year to a record high. We get more now from CBS's Jeff Pegues. 
Traffickers are moving fentanyl and meth in unprecedented amounts along the southern border. The amounts are getting larger and larger. Hard drugs on America's streets are part of the reason overdose deaths soared to a record 93,000 in 2020, mostly driven by fentanyl. There were on average 250 deaths each day, roughly 11 every hour. Experts say the pandemic helped drive up the death toll. People having less access to treatment um, and more uh, time spent using substances, and it's, it's led to a really lethal combination. Michael Biello was a personal trainer who previously had addiction issues. Our children are dying and, and no one's helping us. It's, it's frustrating. We're weary. We're tired. Biello's mother says things changed when the gym where her son worked closed last year, cutting him off from friends. She found him at home unresponsive and says fentanyl was in his system. How would you describe the pain of losing someone like your son and the way he died? Seeing him in the way that we saw him that morning will forever be embedded in my head. And I'll never be the same. And so my, I will be his voice for the rest of my life. A group of former senior government officials signed a letter to President Biden calling on the administration to formally designate fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. Next week, we're going to go deeper into this opioid crisis in this country because it's affecting millions of Americans from all walks of life. These hard drugs do not discriminate. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcast. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, Jeff Begay's CBS, and on Instagram, Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. For Gil Gross, I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.